KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Marlow. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about local politics, value capture, and posting. Today in the program, we are very, very lucky to have the mayor of the city of Culver City, Alex Fish. And we are talking about what's going on in Culver City, some interesting local policies, motel conversions for homeless services, real estate transfer tax, and talking more about the history of Culver City and general SoCal housing discourse. So without further ado, let's uh, get into things. So, uh, so welcome on. Thank you so much for uh, being here, Alex. Thanks for having me, Mark. Long time listener, first time guest. Oh, that's 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 something. Uh, <laughs> I would say in general, um, I don't really look forward to talking to politicians because I think most politicians are very boring, very you know, not very thought. But I'd say uh, you you're the you're the exception because you're also a poster, and you know you post so much on Twitter uh, and well, which is uh, a rarity among California politicians. Well, thank you, thank you for that. I mean, it was enough to to get on in slate for posting well, which which is probably my uh, greatest meta achievement as a politician. I'm more interested in the policy, but if I can get a little bit of notoriety, that's cool too. Well, I think I think it matters. I mean, I would say my general run on Southern California is it's a few years behind the Bay Area as far as housing politics and everything. I think Culver City is the exception. It's some it's something which is I think at the cutting edge of the best cities anywhere. And uh, is, is it 100% because of uh, your posting on Twitter? I, 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 I'm not sure about that, but it's got something to do with it, I'm sure. Well, what I, I will say seriously, because people don't talk about Twitter seriously enough because it's kind of, it's hard to take seriously in many ways because it's not serious in many ways. But um, when you post sincerely, sincerely and, uh, and candidly about things that politicians aren't normally talking about online um it create it has created for me and i think the opportunity is out there for anybody else who wants to take it to connect with people who are extremely knowledgeable who have gone through these fights who have thought through uh the issues who have done the analysis who have done the research who have you know who have talked to all the right people and and there is you know the reason that i'm the way i am is that um i grew up in the age of blogs and there were some really great bloggers um, talking about LA housing and those people migrated Twitter like all the other blog writers and so I was immediately reading their stuff and they were just they'd been focusing on this stuff for years and um, you're right that politically Southern California and LA in particular is tends to be behind both in the political dynamic and the economic and um, housing dynamic um, so it's it's allowed me the opportunity to learn about what's going on up there um, and really try to head it off because, uh, you know, the problems are so massive in particularly the peninsula. Yeah, it, it's like a one giant ongoing distributed uh, think tank and conference. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, the, the wealth of knowledge and I think, you know, the, the collaboration on Twitter. I mean, honestly, I think it, it's 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 helping us get out of the muck of California stuck in this, you know, for, for decades. Uh, say a little more about the, you know, the early age. I don't really know much about the primordial uh, blogosphere of, of California housing stuff. Uh, you know, who, who was behind that or kind of what kind of stuff was being talked about by that? I think, um, you know, Vominos LA and Shane Phillips really stand out as people who were doing quality online work when there wasn't a whole lot else. And, and what was cool about their posts were that they were, um, 
they were urbanism posts to use a word that you know has a lot of weight on twitter but in the rest of the world is perfectly fine <laughs> um and, and but, but talking about places uh, as particularly vominos la that were not places that people paid attention to like palms he was doing these great posts about the good things of palms and palms was is sort of the butt of a lot of la jokes um, but it also happens to be the one part of the west side that um has been affordable up until recently so you know there are things to learn from that even if there are you know negative things about palms yeah and speaking of that maybe just give people a bit more of a frame of reference you know where culver city is what the general kind of uh los angeles I, I, I've, you know, I've only been to, you know, LA a few times. I mistakenly thought that you had the Museum of Jurassic Technology, but it's right across the street in Palms. Uh, but uh, yeah, how would you, how do you, how do you tell people, you know, who don't know LA, you know, what's the deal with Culver City? Yeah, thanks. I missed that segue earlier because I got off on my own BS. But, um, but, but yeah, um, Culver City is interesting. It was uh, established. Uh, by Harry Culver, who was uh, you know early real estate developer, like so many so many early LA area prominent people, men, all men. And in 1917, as the Supreme Court was about to decide the uh, Buchanan case that made explicitly racial zoning illegal, uh, he founded Culver City. Now, he'd had the idea for a while, uh, but it is interesting that in the months right before the decision, um, Culver City was incorporated. It was He chose the site because it was at where a few streetcars met and diverged and so it was, you know, the original informal slogan was all roads lead to Culver City. Later, you know, so it started out as a streetcar suburb in the 20s, and there's a lot of pre-war housing um, around the downtown area, but it also is a post-war city. So there's large, very typical LA suburbs as well. And we're sort of located, um, we make the cut for the west side. We're sort of the southeast corner of what's considered the west side of Los Angeles. To our east would be the Adams District, which is a rapidly gentrifying area because the development pressure related to all the job growth in Culver City. Culver City's added, I'm going to blow the numbers, but it is tens of thousands of jobs over the last decade. And, you know, during that same time, maybe a couple hundred um, homes. <laughs> sure. So that should sound familiar to some of the people. So, so the, the gentrifying area, is that the unincorporated? I was looking at the map. There's the unincorporated block that has some, you know, uh, was it Baldwin Hills in that area as well? But it seems like there's a lot of overlapping neighborhoods and, you know, incorporation. It's 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 hard to keep straight, uh, you know, just what's going on. Palms is part of L.A. It is, and they're all different. And I'll, I'll go quickly around the compass. Culver City is oddly shaped, but you can kind of, kind of you know, generalize. Uh, directly to the north is Palms. Um, and Mar Vista in the in the western end of town, um, which is you know Paul Coretz's district, LA, LA council member, and then on the western side it would be Mike Bonin's uh, LA council district. Um, to the north east is um, you know that's a there's a few different names for that neighborhood, but it's sort of a transition between you'll find you'll find a lot of young families of all backgrounds, and then it starts to get into more historically black Los Angeles, which West Adams, which is rapidly changing. Um, and then you move to the southeast, and you've got um, you've, you're moving towards more more Baldwin Hills neighborhood, um, and then you get into the actual Baldwin Hills. You've got an oil field, which is a big deal in Culver City politics. Uh, to the south, you've got unincorporated. That's unincorporated Los Angeles in that area too. Lamert Park. I'm sorry, um, Ladera Heights. And um, to the south, a little bit of unincorporated Los Angeles, Inglewood, right below that. Then to the uh, southwest, you're dealing with, you're looking at like um, towards the LA, LAX and uh, Playa Vista those and Westchester, LA areas. And then to the west, you're talking about 
uh, Mar Vista and Playa del Rey. So, yeah, it's, it's comparing it to the Bay Area. You know, we have the big cities up here, and then we have kind of these, you know, the peninsula is a nightmare of just all these little municipalities bunched together. Uh, that's kind of what East LA is, but like, you know, you're part of LA. It's, you know, it's the big solid chunk of the city. And then a bunch of enclaves, including some of the unincorporated places, you know, so it's it's a very different kind of setup than what we have down here. I'm just wondering, I, I know there is the what the West Sides, West, West Cog, you know, the yeah. organization of, of and I how like how does it govern when you have the big city, you got, you know, all your little municipalities, and then you have all these other different governing bodies? The, the big problem governing wise is, is the 88 cities that comprise, you know, LA County, LA County plus the 88 cities makes makes things really difficult. It's, it's a million huge people. I mean, Antelope Valley is just I, I it takes a while to get there. Yeah. And it's it's amazing to I heard that described as the metropolitan area dipping its dipping its toe over the San Gabriel mountains, which is, you know, 10,000 feet of mountain. Um, sure. And it's true. I, you know, when I worked, I worked at a pri- in private practice for a long time and as a lawyer and our back office was, uh, you know, the people were commuting from Lancaster, Palmdale, from Fontana, you know, these are massive commutes. How long is that a commute? That's a 60 mile commute from Palmdale to, to Century City. <laughs> Which by LA traffic state, I mean, that's the other thing about LA, you know, I feel like the Bay Area, we have bad traffic, for a long chunk in the morning, four hours, long chunk in the afternoon, but LA, it's bad, you know, almost to the middle of the night. Yeah. I mean, I often say that um, we've reached the limits of this mode of post-war growth. There's, you can knock down Culver City and people are not getting to their destinations anymore quickly. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, I mean, and you can definitely tie a thread between that saturation and the you know housing crisis is in the past it's like oh if you can just you know drive till you qualify a bit further you can at least survive but you know people have reached a limit and you know it's it's people can't commute from without in the same sort of way and the homelessness crisis is 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 ballooning uh but before you were on the council you were the chair of uh what was it the homelessness what was that again it was a committee on homelessness, which we've subsequently changed to the advisory committee on housing and homelessness, recognizing yeah, okay. that, that it's a continuum, right? It's all a continuum of the housing issue. Yeah, that yeah. was that's that's where I left private practice, found myself with um, time to start paying attention to local government, uh, intense frustration at the distance between what I understood to be good city government and what was going on. No, no knock on it on my predecessors, but they just were more traditional small town city council folks. Um, they were not thinking about how parking minimums uh, are destroying urban environments or how, you know, homelessness is directly linked to refusing to build housing in high income enclaves. And I saw that and I, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And, and I was very concerned at the time about the trend that unfortunately I have not been successful at all in stemming, which is that uh, unaffordability is leading to street, it's leading to homelessness of all kinds, which, you know, any kind of homelessness increases street, you know, street homelessness and chronic homelessness. Um, And so I tried to get involved. It was really after the, also after the report from the Los Angeles city administrator's office, which I think was Mithya Raman was heavily involved in, which analyzed the amount that the city was spending on homelessness-related issues versus the results, and it was just like total indictment. I think the number was $100 million. It was mostly mental, mobile crisis intervention unit type stuff, but police were responding to it and incarceration. Um, and I thought, well, that's we're spending a ton of money to 
brutalize people. It's not fixing anything. And so I got involved. And that was also right around the time that the LA County plan to prevent and combat homelessness came out. So, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration in the region about homelessness and our and our lack of success in, in reducing it. Um, but it's only recently that the county started to take anything seriously. And very recently that the county and state embraced the housing first approach. So it's recent that we're taking this seriously. I mean, that's, that's scary things. It takes decades of mistakes or inaction to kind of build a, a crisis. But when it happens, you know, then you start seeing accelerating growth in homelessness. And I, I imagine that's, you know, not stemming yet. The inflection point has not been hit. And I, I guess the thing is, like, the more the crisis blooms, the harder it is to fix things. I know there's, you know, there's long-term solutions and short-term solutions. I know you're, uh, what's this, what's this motel conversion thing uh, that's uh, going on around you? Yeah, I've been, I've been, Pushing that for a long time, even though I think there are problems with it, it's still like a quick and efficient, well, quick. I mean, I've been working on it for, for years and we have yet sure. to, nothing to show for it yet. But um, but it is, you know, that's an existing building. So you're getting around at least part of people's aversion to new stuff. And, you yeah. know, I think, I think at this point, any politician, local politician who's not ready to go out swinging in favor of safe and um, humane shelter, you know, housing, bridge housing, really, I should avoid the word shelter, but bridge housing um, for people who are experiencing homelessness, they're failing. That's like the, the easiest, most low hanging fruit for a local politician to grab. Like, I have an opportunity to house people, we're going to do it. Um, and I, I'm working very hard on a, on a couple of possibilities that I hope I'm finally going to succeed at. And I guess that's the big question, which is, you're just one small, you know, speck in the big pool of the county. And how much like how much can you really control your own destiny and how much is this going to be coordinating with the county and everything and how much is that being your head against the wall and how much can you actually get results i i, I just don't know exactly what, what what the kind of political trade-offs are there i love that question because there's a, a really practical answer and also an important philosophical one that the practical answer is that we've got a great county supervisor in holly mitchell and i'm i know that if we can do our part and say hey our little nice enclave is ready to do its part in combating this problem. I'm confident that the county will provide uh, help with the services. So it's really, we just need to show the political backbone and find the capital to, to find a site. And then I'm, I'm confident that we'll have good, adequate wraparound, not adequate, like real wraparound services to, to actually make a difference in lots and lots of lives. That said, you know, this is a 10 million person metropolitan area and we're a 40,000 person city. So it is, we're, we are limited in the actual dent we can make. So I think what the most important thing philosophically that I can do is try to lead on these issues and show that either that um, to other local officials, hey, it's not that bad. It's, it's okay. We'll see with the next election. Um, or if depending on how the next election goes to tell state leaders, cities can't do it. You know, even this guy who lit his hair on fire and went out there trying to add homes and shelter homeless people, he, he failed. Well, that's a pretty serious indictment of state leadership. So I'm hoping to achieve something, whether I succeed or fail at, the, at my specific mandate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think and it really I mean, it really feels like kind of a make or break point insofar as, you know, kind of, it, you know, L.A. maybe it has head in the sand for for too long. But now you have like, you know, people leading it with actual kind of progressive messages of, of change and getting stuff like actually, you know, 
we're going to have to change the built environment to, to make this happen. You know, we can't just do small tweaks. But at the same time, I mean, just hearing from down in L.A., there's just a rise of, I, I would say, almost like eliminationist tactics from, uh, you know, blood and soil, you know, NIMBYs and so on. And yeah, that's, you know, people who just are denying the humanity of, of, you know, homeless residents and so on. And if it doesn't turn the right direction, it seems like that's the, that's the remaining path for everyone. It's, it's pretty scary. I think that's right. I mean, this is the land of Howard Jarvis and, and there's a sleeping giant in of reaction that, that is underneath the surface. Um, and I really, I, when we, when LA County passed measure H, which was a quarter cent sales tax to fund those homeless services, which has done a tremendous amount, but we've allowed, we've, you know, we've allowed the housing shortage to displace so many people that, you know, housing 10,000 people doesn't, it's not enough. <laughs> that's, and, yeah. and that's the other thing about LA. It's so big that it's been a slow moving train wreck, but the momentum is, in, is, is absolutely, it can feel a little unstoppable, but, but so we need to stop that momentum. We need to change the, we need to show progress. We need to inspire people because you're right. There's when I canvassed, you know, nice thing about small town politics is I knocked on thousands of doors. When people tell me what the community wants, I can tell them when, how many people did you ask? Because <laughs> I talked to a few thousand and, you know, there are definitely people who are, were not afraid to say two, two and a half years ago that they'd rather ship homeless people out to a camp in the desert. And they said that with a straight face. And yeah. uh, it shocked me the first time just because, you know, I, it's not the way I feel. <laughs> um, but it's out there and it's growing. And I, I guess one more, I mean, it's this is the Henry George program. And I think viewing everything with a value capture lens, but it seems like one big problem is if you are acquiring motels or just doing anything, I think in the traditional kind of model of governance is kind of, oh, you throw capital at it. You throw, you know, just all these resources. But it's like a sinking ship in a way insofar as every year the actual, you know, housing and everything gets more expensive. I mean, up, up to this point, I think, what was it? Is it the median price is is tipping over a million in Culver City? And you know, I just imagine, just if if the entire in your city and the entire region, if it's finding resources to house people, uh, if if that doesn't change, it's getting more expensive to to acquire uh, you know land to to make it happen. Yeah, I. I you know, I fully am on board with that. I think you're the way you say it is is 100% right. I'm sure your listeners have heard it that, you know, Henry George provided a really useful lens, um, you know, to that, that there are insights there that are so fundamental and so different from the way we do things, um, especially the way we handle value capture instead of instead of, um, you know, really focusing on the land, the place, society's contribution to the wealth of the landowner, um, we try to, we try to capture wealth created by activity. Um, yeah. Almost exclusively and in a, in a really unhealthy way based on what I think there's some research shows is basically people's embedded animus for anybody who builds something except for single family yeah. homes, you know, developers exist in our neighborhoods. They just develop uh, $4 million homes. Um, so I think that's a really important point that if government doesn't flip that, if government doesn't say, well, this is valuable lands, we need to allow activity on it. And then, and then really focus on 
for Culver City, we enacted a real estate transfer tax to address a part of the value capture question, which I think is much more productive than capturing something as it's built. You know, sure. Um, so yeah, no, I, I not a not a co- not a very clean answer, but I, I just wanted to comment that your point about applying the lens of of um, land value is critical. And I, I suppose that's the other thing, which is it's very easy to say, oh, you know, it's <laughs> just recapture the land value. When of course, not only is that tricky politics in the best of the, you know in the best of cases, but it is you know ad valorem taxes are of course illegal in in California. And and I, you mentioned real estate transfer tax. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to obliquely try to approximate it. But is is does that offer insights when you're looking at things like just you know provisioning uh, you know homeless services and so on I'm, I'm just kind of wondering uh, how many other hacks are there out there and how how, how actually achievable are they I mean yeah no that's great the, the most important hack is <laughs> simply to address housing supply <laughs> yeah we're not allowed to say supply in some circles but it's just it's just roofs to put beds under then they're clearly are not enough this stuff about vacancy is it drives me bananas because somebody you know right now the the thing going around in culver city is that there are 800 vacancies and why don't we fill this first that's less than five percent vacancy rate which is you know that's not healthy like if you have to move and you're dealing with you've got to find somewhere and there's just 800 places and they're all very expensive that's that's not great and that you know the real vacancy is is in the use of our land the real vacancy is on the is the street parking you know yeah i mean and i think you were mentioning earlier about jobs being added you know what's being what's being used to kind of fulfill that need and then on top of it too like you just constantly i mean there's there's going to be new young people graduating who like would want to stay in their community they want to you know, like it's like the vacant the vacancy kind of you know meme is the idea like oh you know we've hit a steady state solution and you know that's clearly not the case cities are dynamic they're changing yeah i hate to give too much oxygen to to that view here um because it is so frustrating but there is you know part it's like a pied piper tune that everything's fine it's just those it's just that there's some kind of tax break that somebody gets that no one can explain that somehow somebody's making money off of not making money um and it's you know it's appealing like if we have part of what looking at land value and, and accepting change in from starting from that point um what it liberates and what we don't have is um belonging and ownership of place right when we get attached to our neighborhoods, we get strong feelings. I get it. Um, and I encounter that. I'm encountering it right now as we talk about, you know, changing our zoning rules. And that's uh, that that leads people to seek out answers that mean, oh, we don't have to change anything. And so as we start to say seriously, like, no, we really have to add the homes for all of those jobs. I start to encounter people who say, what about the vacancies? What about, you know, what if we do this? What if we, what if we, you know, commandeer everywhere that's in a 60-day vacancy period and put homeless person in it. Well, that doesn't address commutes. It doesn't address house, you know, uh, house cost burden. And then you also see people who say, well, what about the the commercial quarters? Why don't we just dips on that? Where was that 20 years ago when that might have helped? Um, yeah. And, and where's the consideration for the fact that um, our neighborhoods can be awesome and bucolic and oases without forcing everybody who makes less than us or has less wealth um, to live in the most polluted parts of our city. So I'm sorry I'm ranting, but... Um, 
<laughs> it's that's that's the California housing politics, you know. Yeah. It, we're all all ranchers, but I I suppose like the the question I have is is it the same dynamics down there with every city? I feel almost every city in the Bay Area has the same jobs housing kind of dance where the cities want jobs and everyone kind of wants to pass the buck. It's like oh, someone else can build the housing. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it takes, you know, only a few pro-housing weirdos are doing anything, but still, you know, they're, you're up against a tidal wave of, of, of all these new jobs. And, you know, Culver City's having these jobs. I mean, are all your neighbors, do they, like, is there a similar jobs housing imbalance everywhere? Or is that kind of a different uh, kind of dynamic down there? I It's it's spreading. And, um, you know, there's a lot there. I mean, one thing I really want to point out is that that's another casualty of Prop 13, right? Is that there's a natural it's naturally difficult to overcome neighborhood aversion to new residents in a way that's not there for hotels even like you can sure. i've talked i've sat in people's living room and talked about a hotel that would go right behind them and they said you know it's, at least it's not apartments and it's good for the city and it's like wow i mean just what well, is that is that because like oh they're like affluent tourists instead of you know some ragamuffin you know moving in the I, block i don't know i think so and yeah. i think it's just the i think it's just the 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 innate um, uh, prejudice against renters um, sure. that I think is more prevalent in Southern California because of some of the, the, the dreams, the, the myths that have been sold about the Los Angeles area. But it definitely, the jobs housing imbalance is rippling out. I mean, the classic example I like to point out in that, and the thing that's changed my mind about commercial development um, is when SNAP wanted to locate in Venice and there wasn't really office space. They just started renting out, leasing out um, storefronts. They just got the space however they could. And of course that drove up, you know, rents everywhere. Yeah. So you can't stop. There's an there, agglomeration effects are real. Like people want to be in the place where they want to be to work and to create jobs and to do new things. And to, if you try to stop that, you have just the same problem, unfortunately, that you do with, with housing and that you get the spillovers and unwanted effects. And Culver City is currently the beneficiary of that. Um, because as much as Santa Monica's added commercial space and not housing, or that Venice is, has allowed storefronts to be leased out and not created housing, you know, it's it we're now sort of in the in the in the center of attention for commercial development, especially creative office. Yeah, and as far as as far as combating this with a like an actual plan, even the people who I can understand if like if your agenda is you know kind of nostalgia and not having change. Like, look at the entire history of, you know, kind of California and just spillover effects. Los Angeles is becoming Silicon Valley South to just because Silicon Valley North uh, got saturated. And, you know, if if you really were a uh, L.A. person who doesn't want that, I mean, I, I, I think there's very good cases to be made like, yeah, you know, good tech jobs, you know, it's, you know, go grab them. But if you don't want that, you should have tried to get Silicon Valley's act together through Sacramento bills, but the exact opposite happens to all these people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think there's a I think there's a lot of truth to that, and, it, and what's what counterbalances it is that, um, or or like what, what the countervailing force is that um, you're you can't really there's this there's this hope I think in opposition to that the the opposition to commercial development that um, well you know what Fresno needs these jobs too, and. I'm not. I'm not the person to say what Fresno needs. I actually have a soft spot for Fresno. I think it's a much better city than it has a reputation for. But um, I'm sure they'd love some Google jobs. I mean, that, that who wouldn't? But um, 
but it's it, to think that that wouldn't just transport the same problems to those places or that that's an intelligent way to do economic development in you know non superstar cities is just cruel like yeah. it, it's it's not a just to say like well you can't do that here and so your engineers have to go live where they don't want to live or you have to do something where you can't make it as productively um, is not a sane or uh, or generous or charitable or you know any i can't i could go on listing virtues and it's just none of them yeah there's a paradox is when everybody in every place says oh i am going to be extremely cautious of a perceived threat of displacement where i am and your if your solution is oh displacement elsewhere i can turn a blind eye to that it's you don't get a solution you just get displacement everywhere you know and it's, it's really yeah, ugly it bothers me so much it's like trying to stick your finger over the end of the garden hose like people are born and people are creative and people do stuff we have to find a way to balance our needs for our neighborhoods and our needs for for stability with the fact that when you stick your finger over that that hose it squirts everywhere right and the yeah. damage if you're in an environment where there shouldn't be too much water is random and it's not something you're actually controlling. Yeah, and, and the the move from that point is more about try to justify that, oh, you know, our people are more vulnerable than those people. When I hear that from people in SF talking about Oakland displacement, I'd say like, no, it's like y- you people in SF are more affluent than people in Oakland. Shut up, you know? It's like, yeah. it's just not reflected by, but if you whine enough, I don't know. I just, I think there's, it's, it's you retreat from facts and just goes into these weird kind of, you know, uh, weird kind of grievance politics. There's no doubt that um, that San Francisco's housing politics are a special and unique thing. I oh, worry yeah. that ours are going to be bigger and meaner as it gets going because it's starting to get going here. Hi, it's it's ugly. And so, I mean, here's a big question, which is just even I'd say some of the better people up here are uh, sometimes they're allergic to anything which touches local control. And just earlier this month. You were part of, uh, you know, the the you know the coalition uh, supporting AB fourteen oh one, a uh, parking minimum reform bill, and part of it is it it's going to reduce local control. But you know, it's I guess you you sold it as this is best for us. How, like, how do you solve the knot of the traditional way, which is every local elected has to always fight for local control? Yeah. Um... It's weird <laughs> how local electeds fight for local control when that is local control over something they don't want to do, right? Um, housing is the ultimate example of parking minimums are right up there. I don't see, I've never heard someone who fought for local control on, a, on an obstructionist issue um, fight for local control over property taxes, for example, which yeah. Prop 13 obviously stripped us of. I mean- in a way that's very deleterious to Culver City. Culver City gets eight cents of every property tax dollar back in contrast to the city of LA, which is 23 or something cents, city of Berkeley, which is like 30 cents. And that's um, a vestige of Prop 13. So, you know, local control is is a proxy for other political fights, always. It's, it's enshrined in every city's charter because of the things that tr- cities have jurisdiction over, uh, which happen to be things that um, the people who turn out in off-cycle elections care a lot about. Yeah, so, and I guess that's that's the other question, is, as far as, I mean, you aren't 
you aren't, you know, an independent sovereign. You are one city, which is empowered by the state, but in turn, you are, you know, uh, controlled by SCAG. You know, uh, you're controlled by the arena process as filtered through SCAG. And I still don't really understand what powers Westcog uh, has, if that is how people pronounce it that way. Uh, but just like, well, what exactly are like all these different balancing forces, which at least, you know, you know, increasingly are doing more to kind of coordinate housing production like how is that how does that work and how does that you know what 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 kind of warts are still out there so i'm i'm uh still learning um skag very quickly uh, but so I, I may get some of this wrong but directionally i'll get it right um you know west side cog is is one west side city's cog is one little um subunit of skag and it's you know it's beverly hills santa monica culver city um city of la and LA County. And um, am I forgetting somebody? Probably. Um, but, you know, so it's mostly a convening. You know, we, we can look at ways to cooperate and collaborate through joint powers authorities and that sort of thing. It's very rare to do that. But, you know, we study things and we also uh, recommend uh, projects for grants and that sort of thing. Um, the SCAG has traditionally been that sort of mega convener where you can get the, you know, the mayor of the city of Big Bear and the mayor of the city of LA in the same meeting. Um, and it's dealt with a lot of transportation dollars. Mm. Um, and and only through a, uh, SB 828 and the adjustments to the arena process has SCAG really taken this housing role seriously, um, as I understand it. And I, so yeah. I'm new to the, I'm on the regional council for SCAG and, um, and have kind of watched the tail end of this arena process. It was a painful process, uh, but HCD did a good job in keeping everybody in line. And so SCAG did its job well, actually, on on RENA, um, famously with the coastal so-called coastal plan, because, uh, you know, HCD handed down the top line number, 1.3 million homes or, or whatever it was. Um, SCAG was supposed to divvy up those 1.3 million homes among its, you know, 19 million people. Um, it's everywhere in Southern California except San Diego. And it ultimately did embrace something that was consistent with the, uh, an allocation that was consistent with the, what AB 820 or SB 828 imagined, which is put the home assignments near the opportunity, near the jobs and near the transit. And, yeah. you know, it could have been more uh, strong. It could have been stronger, but it's also unprecedented. Culver City's got a plan for 3,400 new 33 3400 new homes over the next year eight year planning cycle last time it was 350 so it's 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 gonna be wild to see i mean and i think like any kind of baseline city is is it's taking a challenge but then i mean i, I judge success by how much you see you know uh beverly hills wine on on twitter and so on and there's there's been a lot of tears you know and, and that's that's a good sign certainly i think and i think people will embrace it i was impressed with um some of the other elected, I, I, you know, local politics doesn't exactly bring out um, a lot of mavericks, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's because you've got to face people at, at the grocery sure. store and at pick up and yeah. drop off and rocking the boat is, um, it's a pain in the ass. It's stressful. Um, but I was impressed by some of the SCAG members, so the regional council members who said, we said we wanted local control. Um, SBA 28 gave it to us. Let's get to work. I was like, yeah, that's right. Okay. 
There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I anything that's not the babyish of just like, oh, we can't do anything, you know. And I, I don't know. I hear my, that so. Much. My favorite is, yeah, my favorite is pie in the sky. These numbers are pie in the sky. Well, <laughs> what what is it like? Legalizing the housing is going to ruin the neighborhood, or these numbers are pie in the sky because those are inconsistent points of view. Yeah, I, I would like to think people who enter government would like to think that some sort of governance is possible to make things happen and not just make excuses. Uh, so, okay, we we're talking earlier about, you know, Culver City, you know, its identity, a little bit of the history. I mean, it was a, a real estate town and you're mentioning Harry Culver tried to get people. I, I saw some of the ads. It's like a big streetcar. It's like, come down, we'll, we'll pay for your ticket. And there's like a little note there uh, that says, you know, it's a model little white city. Um, and, you know, this is, I, I guess, a beginning of a, of a long and ugly thread of the explicit, you know, racial, you know, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, in the in the, uh, in the founding of, of the city. So I'd say also, like, how much does does this like, do people even kind of know this ugly history now? And how much is it reflected by kind of wrongs that still need to be overcome? Yeah, there's a lot there, right? I mean, I think, you know, anybody interested in really every Southern California suburb. Why are there 88 municipalities in, in Los Angeles County? The same reason there are you know, a bunch of suburbs in every single North American city. The exact same reason, like the same yeah. thing that Frank Seidel fought against in Minneapolis or wherever he was the mayor, to, to, that, that people were fleeing the city to take their tax revenue with them and avoid the other. I mean, that's why we have this fragmentation and Culver City is no different. So, you know, I don't say that to let Culver City off the hook. And I highly recommend an article written by one of our residents called um, the, Shame, the Hidden History of Culver City's Racist Past, something like that, on LA Street's blog. I think a lot of people have read it and it was a revelation to a lot of people. Um, sure. It certainly wasn't to me because that's just American history. Um, and, and as I say, Culver City is not unique, but it's it was shocking to a lot of people. And a lot of people really pushed back. A lot of people who celebrate the city's history said, well, he just ran that ad once as if that, I don't know if that's true or not. It certainly doesn't absolve the fact that that would be an ad, right? Um, yeah. And, and it was another ad, his like associate had an ad, which is even more explicit saying lots will be restricted to the Caucasian race. And there's, you know, no, no confusing that. They, they had a, they had a Santa, they had a holiday, you know, real estate sale event, come out and check out our lots. And they had a Santa and uh, there were free, there was candy, but you know, not for everybody. It was pretty clear about yeah. who wasn't invited. And I mean, the demo demographics, I mean, how did the demographics compare? Cause right now it's, it's, you know, uh 45% white, you know, down from, hundred percent, you know, in the age of, of Harry Culver, but you know, also 9% black, 24 Hispanic, uh, 16% Asian. Like how does that compare to the rest of the community? Cause you know, I guess LA is, it's, it's, you know, has pretty heavy gradients of, of all sorts of communities, right? It does. It's less, it's, it's, it's more white and uh, you know, higher proportion of white, uh, just white, non-Hispanic white and, um, and Asian people than LA County generally, and certainly most of, and certainly LA city. Um, and I do want to say that I was in my, you know, sort of readings about Culver City's past, I found a HUD survey from the 60s that showed a much greater acceptance in Culver City of, uh, of uh, Black families buying and moving into people's neighborhoods than really anywhere else except for a handful of places in LA County. Um, so, and also uh, Culver City had a phase where people thought of it as, um, as an undesirable place. And uh, I think it's always been a little more white 
than the neighbors. If you look at the redlining maps and if you look at the current, if you look at the census visualization of, you know, warehouse, you know, the race of households, you can see that Culver City sort of cuts into uh, a traditionally black um, area. But what's interesting about that today is that it's quite diverse. That's what drew me to Culver City when I moved here is that it was, it felt uh, like a great representation of Southern California. And I think that's, that it's true at certain moments. The the big problem in my mind is that that is changing. As as the price of a teardown in a single family, you know, an R one neighborhood um, approaches 1.5, 1.6 million, and the redeveloped lot approaches four million in some cases, yeah. but certainly three million. Um, that's definitely not reflecting the demographics of LA County. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at just kind of like, uh, you know, what what are people talking about and like, you know, finding memes and, and the memes are like more and more of like, oh, Culver City, comparing it to the other cities, it's, you know, full of the hipsters. It's full of like the, it's the, the, the new, you know, trend of, of, of where the hipsters go. And if you're not building housing, and you're getting a bunch of white hipsters in, that's, that should be a danger signal if you're, you know. Yeah. That's a is a hell of a lot stronger signal than a horizontally slatted fence. I'll tell you that. I mean, it is when I when I moved here. That's a gentrification signal, right? No new housing. Yeah. The the developers that work here, like it's not like that. A city like this is magically free from developers. We have not unshackled ourselves from the bonds of capitalism and thwarted developers. We simply have mansion developers. Uh, which is not to knock any of them because those are you know those are residents they're those are a different type of developer than the other thing that we allow in southern california which is the 250 million dollar and up mega project with three levels of underground parking um or five levels of above ground podium parking but um what's what's definitely going on is is a change in the population you know the people on my street who have lived here a long time are much more middle-class people the people who are moving in who are wonderful people i've been i mean i've got friends who are recent to culver city and i myself bought in culver city as a lawyer in private practice doing corporate bankruptcy law like i certainly didn't help that phenomena um but it's just you simply cannot afford to live here uh, in a in a redeveloped house unless you're quite affluent yeah and i mean and that is that is the thing I always struggle with, which is the people who always are skeptical of more supply. It's they, I, 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 they don't really have an answer for what do you do by the obvious fact that the status quo is when there's not supply, you still see a lot of displacement. You still see a lot of private developers making a lot of profit. It's the status quo is broken. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a it's a lot of times you see kind of, uh, you know, kind of explicit, uh, you know, at least a useful idiot for, you know, just the NIMBYs who are fine with no change, higher real estate values. Everything stays the same. More people get displaced. I don't know. It's frustrating. I mean, that's that Pied Piper thing of like, well, we can stay, we can keep this all the same if we simply deal with the vacancies. It's it's why it's attractive to people who, who recognize that it's immoral to displace people but yeah just want this one weird trick that can make it all go away um my favorite guy on this was a was online was somebody who i engaged very sincerely saying you know expropriation is you know unconstitutional unless you pay for it is there a funding mechanism for expropriating the land from everybody and and he said well you know if there was uh, it would be fine i said well how would you allocate space like who gets to live where how do you choose how do you deal with the fact that some places are better to live than others? And 
And his idea was, uh, I think, sincere that you just start with the poorest person choosing the best place and move on down, which, you know, that's a different different world than I think is politically possible. Yeah, I mean, if if you if you gather, I mean, that's, you know, you can say that's kind of what the Bolsheviks did in 1917. And I'd say, you know, Godspeed. I mean, I don't think uh, you're gonna have much of a luck against the US military uh, <laughs> by taking over and, and forming the Soviet of the uh, of, of, of greater Culver City. But like, I just in general, like, yeah, it's this thing. It's like, oh, yeah, we need to acquire, you know, hotels, like, don't don't buy them, just seize them. It's like, well, no one, no one is seizing anything, you know. And I think if you really want to be radical, the thing you should be doing is reforming ad valorem taxes, so we actually can tax the land value back to the community. But, but like that seemed that that's technocratic. Let's just seize it instead. It's so it's so strange to me because I think there are a lot of actually really smart and well-meaning and practical people who use the language of expropriation because it's an organizing tool. And I think that many of them mean we should, you know, use the tools of the United States uh, and condemn and pay at fair market value after a process um, for these, for these properties. I think that's what they mean, but it really doesn't draw people in because it sounds like fantasy land. Like if you were to say, Hey, these are underutilized properties. And if we were to ex- expand the capacity of the state of the state to avoid um, turning this over to developers and instead have the state acquire this underutilized parcel that's not being lived in, it's like a you know, 7-Eleven or a motel or whatever, that sounds appealing to me because it's like, okay, I can see how that would work. That's a real challenge. And it's actually quite, you know, quite a change. And it would be, it would address a lot of people's concern because it, it is a problem to simply that we'd simply allow uh, developers to choose what our built environment looks like. The the idea that we control that through zoning and let people trying to only make money do that entirely is, is, is a, it it leads to suboptimal results. I mean, there's around the world, there are places where the planning happens first. You say on these lots, here's what's possible. And then the builders come in, they're really much more builders than developers and say, we can do that. And and we're going to build that. Um, and I don't mean that to knock developers. I think their job is very hard because of all the things that we've been talking about. But um, but the combination of you know sort of organizing language with stuff that's actually practical and could be really popular and is not like not offensive to American sensibilities at all. It's sort of counterproductive in my view. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. I mean that's that's the that's the great SFS export, which is you make the planning process, the battlefield, you extract a few concessions. And I mean, here's the thing. I mean, that even sounds kind of clever. If the only tool you have is planning, you make planning the great battlefield, you get a few tokens out of it, but like it's, it's a pittance like for decades and it has demonstrably failed. And like, I think you're, you need something which is much, much broader for value capture because this, this ain't working. And uh, I mean, I think it's it's also you know worth looking what ameliorative's what uh, you know what other you know what other things are on the on the table. I, I know uh, there's a, a bill that is you know now in uh, sort of uh, sort of Sacramento hell, uh, <laughs> trying to get rid of one of you know the California constitution. Not the it's just a bill. The California uh, state code, uh, you know, the Ellis Act protects all you know landlords from getting top dollar you know sale no matter what 
even you know even at the cost of evicting everybody you know and that's the thing it's like there's a lot of boring things that need to be you know fought and i think a lot of people who know what they're talking about know the else act is a problem but i think a lot of people maybe you know don't realize that the road from here to a better place is just undoing all this cruft that is just killing us yeah i mean cruft is a good good word the other one the other good one i think is um kludges right that we encounter a new problem in california law and so we just ram through some messy solution like the um perihelions what do they call that on the the Oh yeah, the, the extra epicycles. And, yeah, epicycles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. epicycles. That's sort of yeah. California in a nutshell. It's just epicycle upon epicycle, trying to fix you know these weird things. Yeah, and I mean it's it's tough when you have when you have the takings clause and when you have you know these explicit protections. What can you do? And it's I don't know. It's it's uh, yeah, Culver City. It's it's had uh, you know kind of fixes to kind of stop the bleeding, rent control a few years ago. Uh, at this point, but you know it's it's it you can't just staunch it. You need structural change. And it's, I don't know. It's, 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 it's rare to find, you know, the kind of desire. And even when you get, you know, I think, you know, perhaps the most visionary place you can be is massive public housing. You still have to deal with the takings clause. You know, this doesn't go away and you, we have yeah. to find out how to do it at scale. And, and really other than, other than, you know, the, the politics and making sure you're respectful of people's lives and the state capacity issue and the fact that the courts are a mess right now. It takes a long time to get anything through um, if you actually have to go to court and every takings uh, issue, you know, every, every you know, condemnation is going to be a court case unless there's a negotiation. Um, I, you know, I think it's perfectly fine. It's nice to have a procedure to deal with, um, you know, involuntary transfers. And, and it should be sparingly used too, unless, you know, because you, you do want to be careful, but there's a lot of stuff where people are land banking, are sitting on low Prop 13 values, don't really care. They just want to find the right investment opportunity, or frankly, the state ought to provide it. Um, just just grease the wheels. And if the state had the capacity, you could really realize that um, that potential. And thereby, I mean, the, the great example to bring it less abstract is um transit right to yeah. every city every i'm sorry every country with uh, with really great transit or i shouldn't say every but it's it's quite common to see that the transit authority owns the land around the improvement um and and is the leaseholder i think that makes intuitive sense to anyone who stops and thinks about it you build this great sure. public amenity and the state um you know, captures all the uplift in the land value and and lots of people get to take advantage of it. Uh, what we have, especially in LA, with the way that Metro has unfolded, and this is not a knock on Metro because they never had this mandate, you know, but they were never tasked with this before, is that um, Los Angeles brought high quality rail service, or at least decent rail service, to a whole lot of low density places. And so you've got car washes that are simply waiting until there's a zoning change. You know, you've got my neighborhood where people, I love that I live near transit and can walk to it. Um, lots of other people should have that other opportunity. Does, is Metro at all well suited? How, how much do they, I, I know at least a, f a few parking lots I've seen next to, you know, some major subway stations, but I, do they even own that? And just how much, how much do they have this kind of low hanging fruit of value capture? I don't know. I should know that better. I do know that Metro has quite a few parking lots. Um, sure. 
And and there's still, you know, this being Southern California, there is a very widespread political sentiment that that that's good, that that's, you know, you, that's how you bring people to the train. And I can tell you from you know, from personal experience and, and from reading the data from Metro Zone data that um, that is a small quantity of choice user. Maybe they're important to appease politically to keep support up for funding transit because um, they drive in and they go to last bookstore on the train once a month or something. Um, but the real users are people I see every day who are getting there mostly um, not by parking those lots. So so yeah, there, there's I mean, an opportunity, but it may be politically more difficult than the Bay Area. The mid-century park and ride model, you know, it's at least a bit coherent when there's kind of like, I mean, I think there's a lot of ugliness around it even from the start, uh, but it's, you know, you have the suburban people come in, but, oh, please don't park within, you know, I you know you can call it the Disneyland model. We have a big, big parking lot, but please, you can't park, you know, next to the Haunted Mansion. Uh, but, you know, now, like, the entire city, like, it's if it's full of cars everywhere, like, you're not even doing park and ride is, a, is you know, kind of the right way to kind of at least have a strong core. It's like, I don't know. It's, it's and, and as we see, it's very hard to kind of evolve from this classic suburban pattern to change. You know, it's everything is in this, uh, you know, slow moving stasis for, for decades. That's the, the question that's always fascinated me. And, and how do you do it in a way that people can live with? How do you make them feel like they're getting something out of that? In the United States, that's why I go back to the, the European, at least model and other places model of uh, the community saying what can be built and then developers just coming in and doing that. Because the last the reason I think people are averse adverse to developers in the United States is that most of the changes that they see have made their lives worse. Like I have yeah. got, yeah, I've gotten lucky in that I, I bought where I bought in anticipation. I'm very fortunate to have been able to buy land in Southern California. And I did so based partially on the expectation that the expo line and the E line in LA would be built. And the stuff that has come in after that has enriched my life. I can walk to a grocery store. I walk to transit. I'm going to be able to walk to LA, you know, all these other great things that are coming. And I see my neighbors there. I get to live a life that a lot of people would like to live and is not provided. But and most life and enrich your, you know, investment directly, you know, it's like, it's, there's yeah. no trade-off there. There's uh yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, when I moved to Culver city, this wasn't the part where I live is not, was not the, I bought here cause it was inexpensive for, for Culver city. Um, sure. The train has changed that completely. This, this end of town is now the expensive part of town. And I mean, there's, there's like rules going around, like in, I mean, I don't know exactly about the Metro, but I think there was BART specific rules in the Bay area about they're now allowed to buy land near an existing stop, which is like, okay, well, you already built the stop. You're going to uplift, but like, like the question, like does, does Metro does have the ability to buy land even near its stops, but then especially, you know, in a perfect world, you'd, if you'd imagine they buy the land before they expand, you know? Uh, their their routes, and then you kind you know, then you got a lot of nice money for you know for public for public benefit, but you know that doesn't happen around here. It's not even like that's not even this is like the lens that we were talking about earlier, and that you've talked about a lot. It's this is not even that ideological. It's not even not even close to a radical concept, right? That it's it's it just it's just good business sense to it's begin. It's just with. good business. You've got <laughs> I mean, this money. You talk about like like Harry Culver and all these people. They like the same people. Like the streetcar companies knew this. This is how the cities got built, you know. But now our public transit companies, 
either you know aren't clever enough and I don't I think they're full of smart people I don't think it's that but they're not empowered enough and there's a lot of weird kind of you know murky stuff but yeah if if you just ran them with the same common sense the public would benefit so much the path dependency is huge I mean um, you know you look throughout the world at people who have sort of done great things you know created new models and and they're rare they you know, we know them by name you know uh, whether it was good or bad um, you know, breaking out of like, well, my job is to provide decent service with not enough money to this low-income population, which is, yeah, that's a lot of a lot of transit agencies. Um, for someone to come in and say, you know what, I'm going to fund double the headways, you know, more hours of service through the investments that we're making and have this virtuous circle of, um, of service increase and value increase. That's a lot to to ask of any transit director. We just haven't had that person. We haven't had the legislators knowing that person. Maybe they all need to get on Twitter and uh, and get to know each other. That's <laughs> the thing. I mean, I will say. I mean, I'll say it across. The transit directors on Twitter, they they their their brains are twice as big as everyone else. You know, it's you, I, you can't afford not to be on Twitter. I be, think uh, that's right. Yeah, I I think that's right. It 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 totally random tangent example like the HCD the information that they're interested in crowdsourcing housing element reviews um, this week is huge. I mean, that's yeah. a smart use of social media. You've got these, this dedicated community of really bright people who want cities to comply with the law and are ready to read housing elements um, to make sure. And HCD is saying, you know what, go do that and let us know when, <laughs> when someone's being bad. So that's, that's a, that's great. I mean, fantastic. Yeah. So, okay, I think we're 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 at an hour, but let's. Uh, I, I'm just a little curious too about what's the relationship to kind of like how much do you have to care about what goes on in LA city politics? I mean, I <laughs> Garcetti is always you know up to some 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 nonsense, but now he's going to India as an ambassador. I mean, like, well, how much do you care? How much are you invested in the mayoral uh, election coming up? Well, the most important thing about my relationship with Eric Garcetti is that. Fish is immediately before Garcetti in the roll call vote at uh, regional council for SCAG. So, oh, wow. So we're voting buddies. And I bumped into him once at mini golf in Sherman Oaks. So that's my, that's the entirety of my Merrick Garcetti stories. But, um, you know, I don't have to worry too much about LA generally because not a lot happens there. Um, there, that's a lot of council members with a lot of different unspoken rules that I don't understand and not a lot happens. And so, you know, I try to be in decent touch with our neighboring council members through staff or directly um, so that we can work on shared problems. Like because Mike Bonin has a real interest in, in actually solving homelessness, we're in, we're in regular communication. I know, I know Mike and, um, and we're trying to, you know, he's, he's trying to help us with motel conversion. We're trying to help him with a tiny home site on a Culver city owned lot in the city of LA. So um, traditionally the LA Culver city relationship was a more traditional Southern California city relationship where they put their unwanted uses on our border and we put our uh, commercial tax generating uses in places that are surrounded by LA city. So great. It's a lot healthy. It's real healthy, but I think we're trying to evolve beyond that. Although they're still, you know, one of their, one of LA's biggest de facto zoning, you know, uh, development areas is immediately adjacent to Culver City on the Eastern edge. I mean, is, is it, I mean, 
when I say like if LA's in the past, it does seem like a lot of the you know the government is you know maybe certainly seems to be more beholden to classic HOA you know homeowner type you know conservatives. But I think is it? I mean, are you? Do you see it as like an emerging uh, wedge of uh, you know a quote unquote holy alliance? You know, folks who are, you know, good for tenants, good on, you know, trying to find solutions for homelessness, good on, you know, pushing back from, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, police, uh, you know, violence, uh, and then, you know, actually want to change the structure. And I say, you know, Culver City seems like you got, you know, some, uh, you know, majority of doing some interesting stuff there. You got people like Bonin, you got, you know, Nithya, Nithya Raman is, is very exciting. And I, I don't know, what, 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 are you, what are you seeing as far as that kind of emerging potential of something better? It's such a hard question. LA is such an interesting place, complicated. Um, looking at the last election on abstract, you know, the, the abstract things, uh, the election of George Gaston, Gascon, the uh, Holly Mitchell's election, um, Measure J passing, which which took a chunk of LA sheriffs, it took a, a chunk of the county budget and said it had to be spent on alternatives to policing instead of uh, the sheriff's office, and um, a couple other sort of, you know, are we progressive or are we more traditionally, you know, Southern California liberal or are we actually conservative? Um, things came out in LA County very progressive. But I think it really remains to be seen at the truly local level, council races, what's going to happen. I can't even say for Culver City. Um, we, we get mixed messages from the voters. What I think that means is that it's, it's, just, like, it's just like politics elsewhere, you know, throughout the United States. There are real divisions and there are real complicated and still sort of evolving fractures that are being resolved through politics, which is how this is supposed to work. Um, yeah. But predicting how they shake out is difficult. You know, the zoning issue, the, you know, taxation. Measure RE, that our, our reformed real estate transfer tax, and just really quickly, it's a progressive real estate transfer tax that tops out at, um, it starts to kick in at one and a half million dollars of a of any real estate Ooh, sale. Ooh, nice. As opposed to the SF one doesn't kick in until 10 million. That's, that was, that's, a, that's, a, I did, that, that's, you're actually taking on real homeowners selling stuff. That's, that's bold. Uh, that's why I did it. I thought it was very important for to say we're not hosing someone else down. That the question I wanted to put to Culver City voters is: Do we believe that we have that, that we've contributed to this wealth as a community? It's it's kind of I want to take that question of like: Did we create this wealth and therefore should a little bit come back to all of us? Um, and really, it's it's just a little bit. It just it's a marginal tax. It kicks in at one point five. Uh, million at one and a half percent for every dollar over that, and then once you get over ten million, it's a four percent tax for every dollar over ten million. So it, it, there, there are a couple brackets in between there. But I appreciate you recognizing that. Yes, um, I wanted ordinary Culver City homeowners to say, "I could be the person paying this tax." Am I yes or no? Um, and it it won. It was close. Uh, but it politics, you get to find, <laughs> find out the one that will just pass, you know, that's so nice, nicely targeted, I guess. Right. <laughs> but so, you know, what does that say? Um, to me, it says that my hunch of things being divided uh, is correct and that it's probably a little bit more progressive than people are afraid. But we got to mm. get a handle on um 
on the visible human suffering on the streets or we're going to lose people. Yeah. Well, what's, what's a renter percentage in uh, Culver city? Renter percentage, 45% renters. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a classic, classic number. You see in a bunch of cities and, and it's just like one more thing too, is it's like, do the cities, I mean, do you have, like, is there actual antagonism or is there a have to get along? I mean, I feel like from my perspective, I'm happy to say personally, I think, you know, Beverly Hills, Seems like a bad actor in the way that I, certainly I know the Bay Area bad actors better, but you know, is you know, do cities uh, take on other cities, or is that not a luxury cities have? Uh, traditionally, the way that cities took on other cities down here, at least, and probably up there, I would guess, is that um, cities like Culver City, Beverly Hills, and Santa Monica would team up on how bad LA was and like try to try to stick it to LA. We're talking sure. about how we're not LA and that's still, you know, so that's just good old fashioned giants versus Dodgers kind of, <laughs> kind of partisanship. Yeah. But um, I think, I think there's a real opportunity and I think there are people looking to enjoy, exploit that opportunity um, for cities to collaborate, whether it's LA and Culver city or Beverly Hills and Culver city, these problems are obvious. Every single person under the age of 35 sees them. A lot of people uh, older than that are starting to see it. We got to we got to get a handle on housing affordability, homelessness, traffic, air pollution, you know, all these things that we know are issues. So in, in Skag, it isn't like everyone is just rushing out with swords trying to get your allotments to other people. Like it doesn't like it doesn't it doesn't just turn to a bloodbath that way. Well, Skag, you know, that's different. That's where you go to f- do your traditional flogging everybody else okay. and saying not me. But Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 last week at Palo Alto, they're talking about their arena allocation and their staff was even saying, it's like, we're worried other cities are going to sue us. And then because we got our, like, we should have more. It's like, please, you know, I, I would, I mean, I think, I think the knives do need to come out in some places, but I, I can understand when you're in the middle of it, it's, you know. Uh, you know, it's you, you can't you have to keep things sheathed. But uh, uh, any, any other final thoughts before we kind of wrap things up here? Any other things you want to talk about? No, I uh, I I got to say something to get invited back and be more coherent. I uh, I was on a panel earlier today and I had uh, something else about a high school graduation bike parade that uh, has sapped my my usually sharp um, evening wit. So <laughs> so I got to get invited back. Is a late night recording? Yeah, well, you have to think of something really, uh, really dramatic. Uh, some, some, some crazy value capture scheme, and then we'll we'll talk about it for for, for a bunch. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been it's been fun to kind of see the you know kind of practical lens of the ins and outs of everything. So uh, until until then, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. We have been talking to Alex Fish all about Clover City, value capture, housing discourse in Southern California, and much more. You can hear this episode and all other episodes of this podcast at the website, seethecat.org. It's a presentation of Keys Issue, Stanford. <laughs>